0: Of the
1: Third
2: Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron and I am one of your hosts. The other hosts joining me today are Danielson and Caleb.
3: Now, before we start today's episode, I want to state that. No AI programs were used or harmed in the creation of this episode.
1: The research for this show and all of its works was created solely by humans. If you would like to support the show, then there are a couple ways you can do that. One of the ways to do that is through Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day.
2: Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes.
3: In total, we have over 166 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. To see the full list of Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com and click on the Patreon episodes tab, and there you will see an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published.
1: Also, today, we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is another Theories Thursday. Except in that episode, we cover a whistleblower from 1995, lost nuclear devices in the Himalayas, and Michael Jordan's not-so-secret gambling addiction. So, you get access to that episode as well as all of the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you would still
2: like to help us out, then feel free to leave us a written review on iTunes or Spotify. That helps us out more than you
3: know. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, sasquatches, chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show.
1: Oh, and one last thing. Go follow our Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube channels to stay up to date on all announcements, news, and updates. And that is the end of the announcements.
2: So today's episode is A Theories Thursday. And if you are not familiar with what A Theories Thursday is, it is where we each select our favorite topic of the week. We don't tell each other about it we independently research it, and then we bring it to the studio and talk about it. Now, since we each have different topics, and we only know the subject line of it, I bet you can all guess what my topic's over, just by the title, which is OceanGate. Gate. I mean, everyone's talking about it, right? So are y'all cool with me starting, and then we'll just make our way around the table?
3: Yeah, that works. I'm cool with that.
2: All right. So my entire topic this week is one that has been making headlines all across the world. The submersible named Titan that went missing. Now, if you've been living under a rock, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's okay, because I'm going to catch you up, because I'm going to catch all of you up, because because I'm going to tell you what the f*** happened, okay? I'm going to tell you what happened, alright? So for us to understand this entire story, we have to travel back to April 15th, 1912. Anyone want to take a guess what happened that day?
3: Titanic. What about the Titanic? It was switched out with its sister ship and
1: something. <laughs> <laughs> not that conspiracy, no. On that day. Wait, 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 Jack was painting one of his French ladies.
3: Oh, that's right. And then redheaded lady threw some damn thing out in the water.
2: Okay, it's not about the movie, the Titanic. It's about the ship, okay? You got this big ass ship named Titanic. It's April 15th, 1912. This son of a bitch is cruising along to New York, all right? It has 2,200 passengers on board. All of a sudden, they smack it into an iceberg, which tears a hole into the side of the ship, and the son of a bitch starts sinking. Of the 2,200 passengers on board, 1,500 of them die, including Jack, because Rose's bitch ass didn't scoot over and let him have half the door to lay on. She had a big-ass door, did she not? That was shameful. Yeah, she just let them just fall down to the depths.
3: They did the testing on this. They both could have fit. So she just needed to move her fat ass over. Oh my
2: God. <laughs> Jesus. Move her ass all right. So yeah, that's what happened on April 15th, 1912. So this Titanic is sitting at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean at around 3,800 meters, or roughly 12,500 feet for all you Americans. Now at this depth, the water pressure is super, super intense. It is around 6,000 PSI. And I know what some of you may be wondering, what the hell does 6,000 PSI mean? Well, it means that where this Titanic is sitting at, or at least pieces of it, the water pressure is super intense. So imagine two mid-size cars, each of them weighing 3,000 pounds each. You stack them on top of one another, and then you concentrate that down to a one-inch by one-inch square. And there you go. That is 6,000 PSI, and that's how much pressure is down there in that water. So needless to say, we don't have the technology to bring that big-ass ship up out of the ocean due to the water pressure and size. Due to this, over the years, individuals have sent down many subs to explore and see the titanic wreckage and try to discover the lost ruby that rose throughout the back or did she throw it or did she not throw it
3: at the end of the movie when she was all old and wrinkly she went to the very back of it and she uh, tossed it just like that (laughs) 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 jesus
2: (laughs) oh all right anyways if you don't know what we're talking about it's the titanic movie okay all right so back to these uh submersibles okay these mini submersibles one of these mini submersibles that go down and kind of like investigate the titanic wreckage is named the titan and it is run by a company called ocean gate so this titan submersible can dive up to 4,000 meters deep it is made of a 12.7 centimeter thick carbon fiber hole it has a 53 centimeter viewport It weighs 10.4 tons, and for its propulsion, it has four electrical thrusters, two vertical and two horizontal. Now, this Titan sub is small, super small on the inside. It has enough room for five people, and I'm not talking about five people to stand up or lay down or kind of be comfortable. I'm talking five people sitting Indian style. On the ground. You can't stand up in that bitch. It's tiny. Okay. So of those five people. You have one pilot. Who's basically driving the sub. You have one crew member. Who's a part of Ocean Gate. And then you have three guests. Now this sub also has one hatch. That is sealed from the outside. With 17 bolts. There is no other way out. It contains a life support system. That is a total of 96 hours. For five people, it is controlled by a Bluetooth Logitech video game controller, in which I have a picture of the controller and the inside of the vessel. And I'll provide that picture on our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, for anyone that wants to take a look at it. So I don't know if y'all have seen this photograph, but there is the CEO of Oceangate sitting uh, Indian style, and you see some monitors and It looks like he's basically in a small, small tunnel, and then you see the controller right there. And uh, there is a tweet uh, from OceanGate back in 2021 that states, OceanGate's submersible, the Titan, is piloted using a Logitech gaming controller. Sometimes the best solutions are right in front of you. Now, I also have a short video that I want to share with you all of the CEO giving a tour of this Titan sub, Uh, So if you want to see this video, you can go to our website and watch it or you can just listen along Uh, So we're gonna play that right now
4: The CEO and founder of Ocean Gate. Let's take a look at Titan. So we're coming into the sub. This is the only toilet Available on a deep diving submersible best seat in the house. You can look out the viewport. We put a privacy screen in turn up the music and uh, It's uh, very popular We have our uh, control screen here, our sonar screen here, and we can put any image we want in the back. We've taken a completely new approach to the sub-design, and it's all run with this game controller and these touch screens. So if you want to go forward, you press forward. If you want to go back, you go back, turn left, turn right, go down, go up. And it's Bluetooth, so I can hand it to anybody. And it's meant for a 16-year-old to throw it around, and super durable. We keep a couple of spares on board, just in case. This is the second year we've been out to the Titanic. Uh, we went out in uh, five uh, eight-day missions. We did uh, about ten dives to the wreck site of the Titanic, and we did an extra dive on an undiscovered reef that we found. Completely privately funded um, operation, and we're funded by we call mission specialists who help support the mission. So they take quite a bit of money to come and join us.
2: So there you go. That gives you a good visual of what it looks like inside that death trap.
1: My claustrophobia would just be going absolutely bananas. Can you imagine having to take a dump inside (laughs) that? That's what I'm saying. I'm so pee-shy as it is. Like, I got to have the whole bathroom emptied before I go. Imagine somebody two feet beside you. There's no way. (laughs) They're using your shoulder to stabilize themselves.
3: (laughs) Just seeing the inside of that, it reminds me of um, containment entry.
2: Oh, at nuclear plants, you have the containment entry, which... It's the containment building. Basically, when you look at a nuclear plant, a PWR, pressure water reactor, and you see those big old things that look like boobies, that's called containment. It's a gigantic rebar concrete design used to contain the reactor core in case it has a meltdown. So during Chernobyl in the 80s, when that happened, it didn't have a containment, which is why when the reactor had a meltdown and it had an explosion, A lot of the stuff, like the reactor core, got spewed everywhere, and it was super bad. If anything like that happens now, at a PWR, it's all contained. But to get inside that, yes, they have this giant hatch, and you get in it, and you close it, and then it, like, depressurizes, and then equalizes to the other side, and then the other side opens up. But there's been plenty of occasions where (laughs) individuals have gotten stuck in between that area. Anyway, uh, enough about nuclear stuff. Let's get back onto this submersible. So, a submersible is different from a submarine, okay? You got a big-ass submarine, right? You can sleep in it, stand up, walk around. It's huge. It can launch itself off, drive around. It's good to go. You can't do that with this submersible. It just can't launch itself off from the coast and cruise around. It has limited power reserves, so it needs a mothership that is on the surface to pretty much carry it to its location and then launch it basically, like, unload it. And then when uh, it's done with its dive, it resurfaces, and this mothership picks it back up and places it back on its boat and then carries it on to its other location. All right, so like I said, the company Ocean Gate allows individuals to pay for expeditions on the Titan sub to view the Titanic. Each individual has to pay around $250,000 to be a part of this trip. The $250,000 gets you an eight-day journey that is conducted by Oceangate, and it is based out of Newfoundland, and the participants travel 900 miles off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, to the wreck site of the Titanic. The five individuals, which is the one uh, navigator, basically the pilot, the one crew member, and the three individuals who are paying, they get into the submersible, and then they have the latch lowered down, and then 17 bolts on the outside secures them into the submersible. The life support system kicks on, which starts the 96-hour window of them having oxygen down there. After that, they're picked up and lowered into the water, and then they start the descent. Now, this descent down to Titanic is approximately two hours. Once they reach that 12,500 feet, they explore the Titanic wreckage, When they are finished, they ascend to the surface, which, of course, this takes another two hours. All right, now that everyone has an understanding about what this Titan submersible is, the company, and how all this works, let's talk about what happened. So on Friday, June 16th, the Polar Prince, which is the mothership of the Titan sub, so basically like its carrier, the Polar Prince, it departed from St. John's, Newfoundland, with three paying passengers, one navigator, and one crew member. Now, they all planned on getting into the Titan Sub and exploring the Titanic. On Saturday, June 17th, the Polar Prince arrived at the wreck site of the Titanic. The following day, on June 18th at 9 a.m., the dive operations started and the Titan Sub begins its descent down towards the Titanic. At 11.47 a.m., that is the last communication that the surface staff receives from the Titan. The Titan is scheduled to resurface at 6.10 p.m., however, it never does. At 6.35 p.m., authorities are notified that the Titan sub is missing and a response operation is initiated. Since Sunday, June 18th, not much information has surfaced regarding the Titan sub itself. However, the story has taken the media by storm. In every news station, everywhere you look, everyone's talking about it, okay? Which I was hesitant. I didn't want to cover it. But we got so many requests, I was like, I guess that's my theory Thursday. I give the people what they want, okay? Now, the limited information that we do know about this vessel is that it is missing the information of the individuals on board was kind of kept secret, but then it was eventually released, which we will discuss here in a bit. And then today, Wednesday, June 21st, uh, reports started to surface that there were knocking sounds being heard at 30-minute intervals, and that's the current situation. Now let's discuss who is all on board of this submersible. So like I said, there's five people total. One pilot, one crew member, and three quote-unquote mission specialists. So the pilot is French Navy veteran Paul Nassolet. Now Paul has led several expeditions to the Titanic and has supervised the recovery of many artifacts from the wreck where he was the director of underwater research. The crew member on board is the OceanGate CEO and founder, Stockton Rush. The guy in the video that we watched earlier, he's on the vessel. The three mission specialists are actually very wealthy uh, individuals. Well, two of them are. The other one's a son. But One individual is British billionaire businessman named Hamish Harding, and he owns Action Aviation. The other individual is a Pakistani businessman named Shazada Dawood, and he is a trustee of the SETI Institute which is a research organization in California. And he is also a vice chairman of DeWood Hercules Corporation, which is a conglomerate of various businesses that are owned by his family. He is very, very wealthy, and so is his family. The third individual is DeWood's son, Shula Laman. And uh, there's not much about him other than him being DeWood's son. So, yeah, those are the five individuals on board. Now. I started digging into this to try to figure out, you know, what's been going on behind the scenes. Has there been previous issues with this Titan sub? Is there anything weird or funky going on? And I did come across a few weird things. The first thing I wanted to talk about is what happened six months ago. So six months ago, CBS sent a correspondent named David Pogue to cover a report on Ocean Gate and the Titan sub. Now, during this report, David raised safety concerns about the Titan. Before boarding the sub, David was given a tour of the vessel, and the person giving the tour was the CEO, Stockton Rush. During the tour, David stated, hey, you know, this submersible has lighting that was purchased from Camping World, it has an unofficial PlayStation controller, and it's, its ballasts are made of construction pipes. You know, it seems like this submersible has some elements of macgyver Jerry Rigness. Rush, who's the CEO, responded with, I don't know if I would use that description. OceanGate worked with Boeing and NASA on building this pressure vessel. With that being said, everything can fail on this vessel. Your thrusters can go. Your lights can go but you are still going to be safe. After that, David decided to board the Titan to go down and tour the Titanic. But before he did, he had to sign a waiver that described the submarine as a, and we quote, experimental submersible vessel that has not been approved or certified by any regulatory body and could result in physical injury, disability, emotional trauma, or death. David signed the waiver and went into the Titan for the dive. However, during it, the submersible platform that lowers the Titan into the water failed when its floats came loose and the entire dive was canceled. David ended up leaving, but the CBS camera crew stayed there and they decided to film a later dive that the Titan was doing, in which the sub lost contact with its mothership for two hours. Actually, it was like two and a half hours. They had no idea where it was. And then the submersible finally surfaced. And uh, the CBS camera crew was actually able to talk to one of the passengers that was on the Titan that paid the 250000 And they said, we were lost for two and a half hours. So, yeah, that was one of the first things I came across where I was like, oh,
1: my God.
2: Did they at least get, like, refunded? No. Because they pushed it back and they did another, they did a third attempt and that was successful.
1: Which, I don't know, after two attempts, after the first one, I'd be like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get on the first attempt. There's no way you couldn't pay me any amount of money to get on that thing. Oh, hell no.
2: All right, so the next interesting fact that we're going to talk about uh, are some lawsuits that OceanGate and its CEO was involved in. Now, this documentation was uncovered by an individual on TikTok named Photo G Steve, And instead of me telling it, I figured we could listen to him explain it. So we're going to take a listen to his audio clip right now.
0: Breaking news. We are just learning that the founder and CEO of OceanGate, the company that owns the lost submersible that went down to view the Titanic wreckage, was recently sued over fraud after failing to return a half a million dollars for a couple who purchased an expedition after he canceled repeatedly. I'm also still reviewing documents on another lawsuit the company's had for a previous employee who says that the submersible that he was working on was not safe for the depths that it operates at and that in turn he says he was fired. On this one, we'll focus on the fraud. Around November 28, 2016, Mark and Sharon Hagel said they signed a contract with OceanGate to participate in a trip to view the Titanic wreckage, each paying a deposit of around $10,000 for the trip in June of 2018. According to the Hagels, the contract they signed included two additional payments, One was a $40,000 payment that was supposed to be paid after the first dive of Cyclops 2, which was expected to be in October 2017. The second $55,129 payment was due about four months before the estimated date of their trip. Midway through 2017, the Hagels did not receive any updates from Rush and suspected Cyclops 2 was not going to be ready for its first dive, so they considered a refund. In September 2017, Rush traveled to the Hagels' homes to convince them to keep investing in the trip. According to the Hagels, Rush went into more detail about the planned trip, adding the Cyclops 2 would be ready to launch and that they could still receive a refund at any time. In January 2018, the Hagels said they received new contracts that said they would have to pay the full sum of the trip and not the staggered payments scheduled in their original contracts. The Hagels said, based on their meetings with Rush in September, that they signed the new contracts and in February 2018 wired $190,258 to OceanGate. According to them, about a month later, Oceangate renamed Cyclops 2 to Titan, which is the same submersible lost in the North Atlantic Ocean. The Hagels said Oceangate canceled their planned 2018 trip aboard the Titan because Oceangate did not have enough time to conduct a full series of test dives to be sure the vessel could reach the Titanic and reschedule their trip for July 2019. However, in June 2019, according to the Hagels, Oceangate canceled their trip again, saying its contracted support vessel refused to participate. The trip was rescheduled. Scheduled again for some time in 2020. The Hagels then asked for a refund from Rush for all the money they had paid, which totaled $210,258. According to court documents, Rush began working on a full refund plan. On June 19th, 2019, the Hagels received another cancellation notice saying the Titan was experiencing equipment failure. The trip was rescheduled again for July 2020. On October 24th, 2019, the July 2020 was canceled due to unspecified reasons. Finally, in July 2021, OceanGate demanded the Hagels go on to a July 2021 trip aboard the Titan to see the Titanic. According to the Hagels, when they refused, OceanGate told them they would not be getting a refund. The Hagels are asking for damages, attorneys' fees, and court costs. I'll be recording a video about the employee's lawsuit over what he deemed to be an unsafe vessel next.
2: All right, so that was the first audio clip about the lawsuit that the company and the CEO has been a part of or had filed against them all right so let's listen to the second clip about the uh, employee
0: so, I now have a copy of the lawsuit filed by David Lockridge, a former employee of Oceangate, who said he was fired after his concerns dating all the way back to 2018 over the submersible's hull safety were not addressed of the exact vessel that is now missing while on expedition to view the Titanic wreckage. The suit says Lockridge warned in 2018 that the sub-safety could be compromised by, "quotes poor quality control and safety protocols that, quotes paying passengers would not be aware of. David Lockridge was Oceangate's former director of Marine operations and also alleged that he was wrongfully terminated after raising these concerns about the company's refusal to conduct critical, non-destructive testing of the experimental design. These filings say that after OceanGate's CEO Stockton Rush asked Lockridge to do a quality inspection of the submersible, Lockridge developed grave concerns about a lack of non-destructive testing performed on the hull of the Titan. While completing the inspection, Lockridge said he asked co-workers if anyone had formally scanned the materials being used to secure the vessel from the high-pressure environment. Lockridge said he was told that no such scans had been done. Instead, he said sound-based systems would check for flaws in the hull in real time in order to detect issues. Lockridge said that while he was met with hostility hostility and denial of access to necessary documentation. While completing the inspection report, he submitted it on January 18th, 2018. The next day he spoke before company leadership, including Rush Bonnie Carl, the human resources director, Tony Nissen, the engineering director, Scott Griffith, the operations director, and raised his concerns. Lockridge said he recommended OceanGate voluntarily seek out regulation and classification through an agency such as the American Bureau of Shipping, which the filing say inspects and certifies submersibles with assurance tests and satisfy industry standard safety controls. But Lockridge said that after the meeting, he was fired. Oceangate then allegedly gave Lockridge approximately 10 minutes to immediately clear out his desk and exit the premises. A court filing says it's unclear whether Lockridge's concerns were ever addressed or whether these scans occurred at a later date. Lockridge's allegations were filed as a countersuit against Oceangate, which had accused him of breach of contract, fraud, and revealing trade secrets. Lockridge denied all of the charges. The case was settled out of court. In November of 2018.
3: What do y'all think of that? That's some sketchy shit right there. Yeah. They would do real-time tests. So that's literally going down and waiting for something bad to happen.
2: All right, so let's move on to the next interesting fact that I came across, which is about one of the billionaires on board the Titan, Hamish Harding. So Hamish has a stepson, and a couple days ago, his stepson posted a photograph of himself, at a Blink-182 concert, with the caption of, It might be distasteful being here, but my family would want me to be at the Blink-182 show, as it's my favorite band, and music helps me in difficult times. Black heart emoji, praying hands emoji. I don't mean to laugh at the situation, but look how ridiculous this is. Dude's vibing, bro. (laughs) He's like smiling, he's taking a picture in front of the Blink-182 merchandise, it's like, man, look, if I had a stepdad and he was down there or, like, a family member was down there, ain't no way I would go to a concert, man. I'd be there with my family.
3: <sighs> yeah, I don't think I'd be able to enjoy the concert as much as I would if family member was safe. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting.
2: All right, so the last interesting fact that I want to talk about is what happened last week. So last week in the Mediterranean, a boat sank that was carrying... Hundreds of migrants from Syria, Egypt, and Pakistan. Dozens of people were initially found dead floating in the waters. However, hundreds of men, women, and children are still missing. The Greek Coast Guard came out and stated that, Despite receiving indications that the boat was in distress and sinking, we decided not to intervene. The migrants were being smuggled in, and they did not want our help. How ridiculous is that? I mean, regardless if they're migrants or not, or being smuggled in, they're human beings that are suffering, that are dying. Go help them. So yeah, I find it appalling that this story was actually ignored. You have hundreds of individuals who have passed away, all because of the Coast Guard ignoring them because they viewed them as less than. When in reality, they were just your normal human beings searching for a better life for themselves. And as humans, we failed them. And it blows my mind that this story is not receiving the same moment-by-moment updates as the wealthy Curiosity Seekers lost in the depths of the ocean have. It's disgusting. But that's my own personal opinion right there. And also a little bit of a interesting fact about what happened last week that no news station has covered. Alright, so let's get on to the scenarios of... What could have happened? Where this thing is at? Or what's you know? What's the outcome? And I have a few scenarios that I'm going to go over. The first possible scenario is that there was hole failure and it caused an instant implosion. This happened as soon as it reached the depth, and uh, once that happened, the hole failed, implosion. Everyone instantly died. That's the first scenario, which is. Pretty bad, but I would say it's not the worst case scenario.
3: The implosion happens, like, really quick, doesn't it?
2: Oh, instantaneously, yeah. They would never know. Damn. So the second possible scenario is that they are trapped on the ocean floor or trapped because they are hung up on the Titanic. So the crew is sitting there in complete darkness since the Titan is stuck or on the bottom, and they're waiting to either ultimately suffocate or freeze to death. Now, if this is the case where they're trapped on the ocean floor or they're hung up on the Titanic and they were discovered and there was time left in the life support, which I think at this period, there's like 24 hours when we're recording this right now, which is Wednesday. So they have like a day left. If they were discovered, it's it still doesn't change things. There is no equipment that could bring this sub back up to the surface. There are only three operating subs in the world that can go to this depth at which the Titan is at. So even if they find the Titan, you know, by using a ping from a sonar, comes back, and they're like, yep, it's down there. There's nothing they can do. There's no way to bring it back to the surface. And there's no way to go down there, even if you could, and let him escape. It's the
1: inevitable. They're, they're dead. Sad truth. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to have to agree with you on the first point you made about the integrity of the craft. Because as I was looking at that picture, you can see if you go look at it, there are wires sticking outside of the craft. And it looks like they're encased in the tubing of a beer funnel. So it's like if they were to knock into something, it wouldn't be too hard to knock that out of place and in turn just ruin the whole electronics of the system, and at that point you're stuck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: All right, uh, so the third possible scenario. All right, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and 6-1-since-that-matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: All right, welcome back. Uh, So the third possible scenario is that once the sub had issues as it descended, it automatically dropped its ballast and floated back to the surface, which of course takes them two hours to float back to the surface. They are currently floating in the sea somewhere with no electronics working so they can't ping off the Starlink satellites. So that's how they communicate with the mothership. Once they hit the surface, they ping off the Starlink satellites, which then go down to the mothership and tells them the location of where the Titan's at. And then the mothership goes and picks them up. But if they have no electronics, they can't ping off the Starlink satellites to communicate their location. If this is the case, that means the entire crew is still locked inside of the sub and they are still drawing on the life support system, which may or may not be functioning. The crew cannot open the submersible and escape. This is due to it being closed shut on the outside with the 17 volts. And even if they were able to open it, it would immediately be filled with water and sink anyway. Also, the submersible does not carry stuff like life rafts and survival suits. They are not designed for surface operations or stability. They ride extremely rough, and due to this, it may batter the crew to death, even in moderate seas. Like if the waves are just a little bit bad, this thing's gonna be rocking back and forth like a damn roller coaster nonstop. And this is concerning, because the expedition was almost canceled due to very choppy waters. That's one of the scenarios. Can you imagine that sitting in there, just being flung back and forth? I don't know what's
1: worse, that or being at the very bottom. <laughs> I'm just imagining the person at the beach in a 100 years that sees that thing roll up on shore? That's a hell of a message in a bottle right there.: Oh my Ooh. God. It. that's that's almost as bad as my thought what was your thought you're talking about how choppy
3: the waves and stuff are they're just being battered inside just watching the video and seeing their fucking crapper shit's gonna be everywhere oh my there's nothing God. Sto- no l- i saw them like they pulled out the pee bottle but there's literally nothing stopping anything from coming
1: out it reminds me of jackass when steve-o was in that porta potty and they flung him up and shit was being flung everywhere
3: that's exactly my thought right there is that's
2: Yeah, it's horrible. All right, so the fourth possible scenario, which is the last one, as to what possibly could have happened to them, is as soon as this submersible got to the depth where the Titanic is at, it developed a pinhole leak near its window. Now, this pinhole leak, of course, is going to create a tremendous amount of pressure of incoming water, and this incoming water is going to turn into mist. So you have salt water mist being sprayed inside the cabin all over the electronics. It causes the electronics to short out. This, in turn, initiates the auto-ascent protocol that the sub has. The sub starts its almost two-hour ascent back up to the surface with this pinhole leak still spraying the salt water mist into the cabin as it's going up. Eventually... More and more of this mist turns into condensation on the walls, which turns into water down at the bottom, which collects more and more and more. After a while, the positive buoyancy that is carrying the sub to the surface is going to equalize due to the amount of water that's being filled in the cabin. And then what happens after that is it's going to become negative buoyancy, and the water is going to make The submersible starts sinking and then, boom, impacts the bottom and the crew drowns.
1: There's really no way out for them is what you're
2: saying. The only scenario of them surviving is if somehow they've already surfaced and they're floating around getting thrashed and they are found within 24 hours before their life support runs out. So whoever finds them can undo the 17 bolts on the outside, get them air, and get them out of there. That's the only scenario where they survive. It's
3: depressing. Yeah, a little bit depressing. I mean, everybody wants this to be a good outcome for them, for them to survive. But those chances are very slim right now.
2: Extremely slim. What do y'all think's going to happen? Let's make predictions.
3: Oh, man. I think it was your, the pinhole scenario, maybe? Where they started coming up, but yet, as it filled up, they're, like, not at the surface. They're, like, right under the surface. And the longer they wait, yep, they're just going to drop down, sink.
2: What about you, Caleb?
1: I don't think they're at the bottom. If they were at the bottom, it would be because they got hooked onto something. Kind of like what you were saying, Aaron. Just looking at the craft, it looks j- it, jerry-rigged, like you said. Well,
2: if you or a loved one want a trip... On to Lake Travis on the USS Theories of the Third Kind for $250,000. We've got a kayak with one extra seat. We can paddle you around Lake Travis in Austin for an hour and show you the scenery for only two hundred fifty dollars And we guarantee you, we will not get lost and you will not die.
3: I can't make that guarantee. I'd, I'd probably get lost. Not the dying, the lost.
2: All right, I don't, I don't mean to be insensitive, but there you go. That's the Ocean Gate topic. Uh, that's what's been going on as of Wednesday, June
3: 21st. Okay. Thank you for that. Because, I mean, I've looked into some of it, but I have my own topic to look up.
2: Speaking of that, who wants to go next on their topic? Yeah, yeah, I'll go next. All right, sweet. So what do you have for us this week?
3: Now, before we get into that, we are going to take a quick break. This is our last one, so don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back.
1: So this week, I was actually looking through Reddit, as I usually do, and I came across a post and people were talking about what they would do if they won the lottery. And it got me thinking, what's happened to people that have won the lottery jackpot and kind of how their lives are going now? Come to find out, a lot of their lives went to complete shit after winning. So my topic this week is about the people that won the lottery jackpot and how their lives went to complete shit afterwards. It's kind of an open secret that winners of ridiculously large lottery jackpots tend to end up in shitty situations at an alarming rate. I'm not talking about the $1 million winners, but anyone in the 8 or 9 figure range is definitely at risk. Large jackpot winners face double-digit multiples of probability versus the general population to be the victim of homicide, which is something like 20 times more likely. They're 20 times more likely to be killed. Yes. Oh my god bankruptcy, and kidnapping, and triple-digit multiples of probability versus the general population rate to be convicted of drunk driving, a defendant in a civil lawsuit, a defendant in a felony criminal proceedings, or the victim of homicide, usually at the rates of family members, and this is 120 times more likely in this case. By family members? So believe it or not, your biggest enemy, if you suddenly become possessed with a large sum of money, Is you. At least you'll be consoled by the fact that you get to meet fate by your own hand. If you can't manage on your own, don't worry. There'll be a healthy number of quote unquote friends, family members, and family ready to help you start your vicious cycle downward. Often, they won't have evil intentions, but as I'm sure you know, that makes little difference in the end. Jack Whitaker, a West Virginia native that dressed like Johnny Cash, is the poster boy for the dangers of a lump sum award. In 2002, Mr. Whitaker, 55 years old at the time, won what was also at the time the largest single award jackpot in U.S. history, which consisted of $315 million. Good lord. Sorry. At the time, he planned to live as if nothing had changed, or so he said. Whitaker wasn't your typical lottery winner either. His net worth at the time of his winnings was in excess of $15 million, which was due to his ownership of a successful contracting firm in West Virginia. His claim to want to live as if nothing had changed actually seemed plausible. He should have been well-equipped for wealth, as he was already quite wealthy after all. By all accounts, he was somewhat modest, low-profile, generous, and had good intentions. He should have coasted off into the sunset, but not exactly. Whitaker ended up taking the all-cash option for 170 mil instead of taking the annuity option. He took possession of 114 million in cash after 56 million were deducted in taxes. So he won what 350 something million.
3: Then he took the all cash, to which dropped it down to 100 something million. And then when he
1: finally got paid, it was 114 million. Yes.
3: The hell happened to the <laughs>
1: the government's got to get their cut, man. Dang. Whitaker quickly became the subject of a number of financial stalkers. These guys would lurk at his regular breakfast hideout and give suggestions for him to spend his money, all of whom were unemployed, which I found f***ing hilarious. Hey, you got any games on your phone? (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, Whitaker stopped going to this breakfast joint. Eventually, they began ringing his doorbell, sometimes even early in the morning. Before long, he was paying off deputies to protect his family. He was accused of being heartless, cold, and stingy. He began receiving letters from all over, including letters from children with cancer, people with diabetes, you name it. He hired three people to sort the mail and a detective to filter out the false claims. Wow, did he help out the people with legitimate claims? We get into that here in a little bit. Brenda, the clerk who had sold Whitaker the ticket, was a victim of collateral damage. Whitaker had written her a check for $44,000 and bought her a house, but she was by no means a millionaire. She was followed home from work threatened, and assaulted. Whitaker's car was broken into twice by trusted acquaintances who watched him leave large amounts of cash in it. $500,000 and $200,000 were stolen in two separate occasions. What is he, Floyd Mayweather? Traveling around with that much money? What's he doing? I'm too paranoid for that. In the first instance, the thieves spiked Whitaker's drink with prescription drugs. The second incident was at the hands of his granddaughter's friends who had been probing the girl for details on Whitaker's cash for weeks. Even Whitaker's good faith generosity was questioned. When he offered $10,000 to improve the city's water park so that it was more handicap accessible, locals complained that he spent more money at the strip club. My God. Whitaker invested quite a bit of his earnings in his own business. He tripled the number of people his business employed, making him one of the larger employees in the area. It eventually had given away $14 million to charity he was giving. Obviously more to the strip club.
2: I mean, he went to the, he built, what was it, the park or the playground disability accessible?
1: Which is awesome.
2: And then he paid for young women's
1: colleges, you know? So, good on him. <laughs> like how you put that. To top it off, Whitaker had been accused of ruining a number of marriages. Whenever he went back to the small West Virginia town he called home, the local men would get jealous and say his money made them look inferior. Resentment festered within these men, and Whitaker ended up paying four settlements related to this sort of claim.
3: Whitaker, his business was already $15 million worth. So $15 million didn't make you feel inferior? Like, that makes me feel inferior. Start making that claim about Elon
1: Musk coming around Austin or Joe Rogan. We'll never leave you. Never. His family's immediate circle were quickly the victims of a number of overdoses, emergency room visits, and fatalities. His granddaughter, the 18-year-old Brandy, who Whitaker had been giving $2,100 a week allowance. Uh, What? I need that job. I I know, right? (laughs) Jesus. So she was found dead after she had been missing for several weeks. Never mind, I don't want that job. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) Her death was deemed a drug overdose, but Whitaker suspected foul play. Her body had been wrapped in tarp and hidden behind a rusted-out van. Her 17-year-old boyfriend had died three months earlier in Whitaker's vacation house, also from an overdose. Some of his friends had robbed the house after the overdose, stepping over his body to make their escape, and then returning for more before stepping over his body again to leave. His parents sued for wrongful death, claiming that Whitaker's loose purse strings contributed to the son's death. Amazingly, juries are prone to award damages in cases such as these. Whitaker settled again. All right. Jesus. I'm sorry
3: I keep interrupting. This one confuses the hell out of me. They said that her death was pretty much an overdose. So it was like an accident. Accidental overdose, right? Correct. But yet somehow she wrapped her own self in tarp and crawled under a van. On their van. Exactly. Oh, my God. West Virginia police, what the what the hell are you doing over there?
1: <laughs> They're busy chasing the mothman. Facts. Even before the deaths, the local and state police had taken a special interest in Whitaker after his newfound fame. He was arrested many times after his winnings. The funny thing is, he had a nearly spotless record before hitting the jackpot. In 18 months, Whitaker had been cited for over 250 violations. These range from broken taillights on one of his five new cars to improper display of renewal vehicles. A lawsuit charging various police organizations with harassment was to no avail, and Whitaker was hit with court costs instead. Whitaker's wife filed for divorce. During this process, a number of his assets and the accounts of his operating companies were frozen. Due to this, Caesars and Atlantic City sued him for $1.5 million to cover bounce checks. Today, Whitaker is badly in debt and bankruptcy looms large in his future. But hey, that's just one example, right? Jesus, no. Nearly one third of multi-million dollar jackpot winners eventually declare bankruptcy and some end up much worse. To give you just a couple examples, consider the fates of these cats. First off, we got Billy Bob Harold Jr. This guy won $31 million in Texas in 1997. As of 1999, He committed suicide in the wake of incessant requests for money from friends and family. He quoted, Winning the lottery is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Another guy, William Post, he won $16.2 million in Pennsylvania in 1988. In 1989, his brother hired a contract murderer to kill him and his sixth wife. The landlady sued for portion of the jackpot. Hold on, hold on, sixth wife? Sixth, like one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, dude's a player. Holy shiza. Player, (laughs) player. The landlady sued him for a portion of the jackpot and he was convicted of assault for firing a gun at a debt collector. He declared bankruptcy and died in 2006. There are so many of these cases that are eerily similar. I'm not going to read them all aloud, but I will post the rest of them up on our website for y'all to take a look at. Wait, what would you do if you won the lottery? That's, That's my first question not, well, not tell a soul. And then I would, well,
2: it depends on how much I won. Uh, I would likely contact uh, an attorney in like New York or somebody that's good with handling financials, get them to fly down and, uh, help me set up shit. Someone who knows who's been, been doing this for a long time, you know, and I would not, uh, come out and say, Hey, I'm the one who won it. Some States require the person's identity to be revealed in some states you don't have to you can stay anonymous i would 100 percent stay anonymous same here about one million percent now i would not tell anybody i would get the person the attorney to fly down from new york after i have everything set up i would then say hey everybody meet me at this location it'd be a giant warehouse i'd have it set up like rob Daredex fantasy factory i'd have laffy taffy by d4l playing right I'd have the freaking Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders dancing, right? I'd be in a, a swimsuit. and I'd have an underground pool, and I'd be swimming in it. And I'd be like, whoa, look what I found. And then there'd be a submarine down there. There'd be like a model replica of the Titan. And then I'd be like, just kidding. And then I'd swim up and be like, oh, bad joke. But hey, guess what? We're millionaires, bitches. Woo. That's just like, you know, off the top of my head, which just a couple
1: ideas I got. I love that. Dan, what about you? I want to be doing all that. <laughs> you and I were talking about that the other day as we were kind of discussing this. Yeah, it's was like, I would use the
3: money, you know, contact a lawyer, make sure that the funds are secured, you know, all that. Try to want to stay anonymous. I want to pay off all the debt, pay off houses for family, friends, but they won't know who paid off. It's going to be completely anonymous. And I'm not going to honestly, I don't even think I'm going to tell a soul.
2: You're going to act surprised when they call you up. Somebody paid off my mortgage you know what they paid mine hey Daniel somebody
3: pay off my mortgage somebody pay off my mortgage Daniel me too me too they paid off mine they paid off my car It's like I don't know who did it and there I am just writing another check Dan's
2: Vietnamese for anyone who doesn't know and that was uh, his mother Kim lover great woman great woman
3: I'd just like to be able to pay off all my stuff not have to worry about any debt and then just live a normal life drive the same car Maybe buy me a little bit bigger truck, but other than that, I don't want to change anything. I don't want this big-ass mansion. I don't need nothing like that. Yeah,
2: to be to be honest, I wouldn't get the the factory or the whatever. I wouldn't do all that. I would get the attorney, like I said. I would stay anonymous. I'd do what you do, pay everybody's stuff off, act surprised. But then I would like buy me a small, maybe like three bedroom, four bedroom house with a lot of land and then just build like a motocross track in the back and have a lot of deer. So I could just ride a motorcycle, hunt deer in the back and have like a little mini farm to grow my own food and to just keep to myself. I would also build a badass podcast studio and then we'd all live together on that compound. Eventually we'd all have houses, right? I'd build all of his houses. And then we'd fucking buckle that bitch down. We'd have shipments of grenades coming in, right? Because you can legally buy them. And then the UPS would tell on us. And the ATF and uh, FBI would come and raid us. And we'd be Mount Carmel number two. You just call me Aaron Koresh. Anyway. So what about you, Caleb? I mean, you guys would be fucking blessed. You already know that, baby. Shit.
1: Oh, I like that. I would just make sure all my peoples are squared away. And I would continue going to McDonald's and getting a McDouble with no pickles or onions. I wouldn't change a thing. I don't
3: know. I think the only people that would actually know if I did would probably be you two to be 100 percent because I don't think I'd be able to <laughs> hide that from you two. I tell you what, the pranks, though,
2: I would get billboards and just put random pictures of y'all on it. I'd get it. I'd get a blimp and I would put like y'all's faces on the blimp and just have it just drive by. I mean,
1: I think it would be hilarious. I th- that would be awesome, actually.
2: That would be. When I used to work at Golson Grocery, a rich man in the area who owned all the cattle named Mr. Knutes would come in. They called him Rhino because he looked like a big old fucking Rhino. He was from overseas, came over, had one cattle, built an empire, wealthy as shit, owned all the cattle, all the land in the area, money just flown out of his pockets, would come in, would buy a Diet Coke, and then buy one of every single scratch off, and then $100 worth of lottery tickets, random numbers. And Damn. he would get that with his newspaper every day. I think it's a more so an of addiction of a either gambling or like a risk-taking or like a
1: addiction to money, you know? I think you're exactly right. How do I say this without coming across as a piece of shit? The people that usually buy lottery tickets, from my perspective, they're trying to take the easy way out, if that makes any sense. It's much easier to go buy a ticket and possibly get $20 million than actually work for it. I mean, yes, that's honestly true. You can't really Beat around the bush on that one. And with that being said, I think that's where your argument comes in with the addiction, because you constantly chase that dream. You constantly chase that treasure. When you think about
3: it, how many conversations do like everybody in the world does sit around with friends like, what would you do if you won that much money? Literally, like that's how conversations go. And then next thing you know, the conversation leads into, you know, we should go buy some lottery tickets.
1: Risk it for the biscuit. I'm getting in a little on our personal lives here, but whenever we go to the gas station and I fuel my terrible habit of this nicotine stick, I usually buy a scratch off when I'm there. So I'm not judging these people because I am one of these people. I am too. I, I still got three lottery tickets downstairs. I got to turn it. The reason I ended up buying in the first place is because my mom said she had just whenever she was down here, she scratched and won like five hundred dollars or something. So it's like, well, damn, if it's that easy, I'll just go buy a ticket and be rich.
3: Exactly.
2: Seems like every time I talk to my mom, she's at bingo. and just won like 700
1: or $600 at bingo. And it's like, damn, I need to go to bingo. But, yeah, you were talking about that the other day. So it's like, <laughs> I want to go to a bingo hall. And I think, too, with the climate of today's society, if you go on Kick, which is an alternative to Twitch, just a live streaming service, there are so many people that gamble on that site via stake and they're doing spins, probably like 60 of those spins a minute, $60,000 just down the drain in one minute. And I can give you sources if you want to go look at these guys, blow their money like idiots. I can't do it. I can't go to casinos and play the
2: slot machines. I'll go there and I'll watch other people play and I'll drink the free sodas. I can't play the slot machines. I could go there and play Texas Hold'em because I'm in control or blackjack. Exactly. You have some control, but when it comes to like spins and random, nope. That's to me. That's just, I could just drive down the road and just throw my money out the window.
3: I think it's like general adrenaline rush because I went to a casino when I was working in Iowa. It was my day off, nothing to do. I was like, I've never been to a casino. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna leave my wallet in the car. I'm gonna take a hundred dollars in there with me. It's like, that's all I'm going to spend. I ended up doubling that within like 10 minutes and I'm like, damn, that was, that was pretty easy. I should just keep going. Boom. Lost it all within like five. I spent no more than 20 minutes in that casino. As soon as I, was, I lost it all, I was just like, well, I should have quit while I was ahead. But, like, I think it's just that adrenaline like, like damn, we're doing good. Because like, you win a little bit, then you take that lottery ticket back in, you turn it in, you get more. I mean, that's what I've been doing. It's just like that adrenaline that you get from
1: it, like winning. So if any of you guys have problems with gambling please call 1-800-522-4700 and get help
3: can you text me that number or
1: 804 804- <laughs> <I fuck> <laughs> also
2: uh if you are a loved one have won the lottery and you want to share your story with us send us an email we would love to hear from you well thank you for your topic this week caleb it was excellent i really enjoyed it
1: thank you i as i was thinking about it i was like this really isn't a theory and it's really not a conspiracy but it's damn interesting so I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I guess we
2: move forward to our last Theories Thursday, which is Dan's. And uh, right here you have
3: Ricky M. What is this, Ricky Martin? No, but for my topic for this Theories Thursday, I decided to go with an unsolved death that has baffled law enforcement, the FBI, for over like 20 years. This would be the unsolved case of Ricky McCormick. So have either of you heard about Ricky McCormick? I have not. I have not. So. There's a picture of him. We'll provide that. It's the only picture that seems to be on the internet of him. Ricky was a 41-year-old man that was found dead by the side of the road in a cornfield outside of St. Louis, Missouri. I think it's like West Alton. On June 30th of 1999. No one knew how he ended up there in the cornfield or what exactly happened to him. But there were two mysterious encrypted notes that were found in his pants pockets. But now before we hop directly into this, I'd like to go over you know his background a little bit just to see what kind of person he was. So Ricky McCormick was born June 14, 1958. And even at a young age, his family noticed that Ricky seemed to struggle with some sort of mental health issue. His family told reporters that he would always stand alone during recess. He would act strangely. And then he would tell very, very odd stories.
2: You got any examples of these stories?
3: His family didn't provide any, sadly. Dang. Then Ricky's mother even went as far as telling the press that her son was the R-word. You're talking about
2: mentally retarded? Yes. Which is the correct medical terminology, might I add, before I get flamed in the comments on Instagram?
3: So I looked it up to, like, what the correct way of saying it nowadays. I guess it changed again. So now it is an individual with intellectual disability. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's, his own mother called him that. Which, I find that kind of upsetting, but... Back in the day, medical terminology. I mean, that's true. So it does look like they supposedly had taken Ricky to a psychiatrist, in which the psychiatrist stated that Ricky had what he called a brick wall in his mind. He said that Ricky refused to break that wall, he didn't like the life of living poor, and had an active imagination. But this wasn't quoted from the psychiatrist. This was quoted from his aunt, Gloria Cookie McCormick. I've
2: never
1: heard of that phrase of like having a brick wall in your head. I, I, don't, I don't get that phrase either. I don't understand that. Was he just talking about the obstacle? Because he was talking about wanting to be wealthy and stuff. Do you think that wall could be correlated to the obstacle of becoming wealthy?
3: I think it was, I guess you could say, like, instead of it being a brick wall, it's like more of a mental block on living the, you know, poverty life. Right. Being poor, not having a lot of money, not wanting to really deal with reality that's probably the mental block I guess he's probably mentioning but yeah to continue on Ricky continued going to school until he dropped out of high school in which his family was not even sure how he made it that far considering they said he could barely read or write so teachers were just passing him on from grade to grade which sucks because his family said that he couldn't really spell and when he wrote he scribbled so it's like how did he make it that far So from there, he would keep minimum wage jobs as well as live on disability since Ricky suffered from chronic heart and lung problems. Now, Ricky often had run-ins with law enforcement, but those were mostly misdemeanor charges. That was until 1992, when he was 34 years old. Ricky was charged with unlawful intercourse with a minor, statutory rape, who the family referred to as Pretty Baby, who was younger than 14. And not just that, He had two children with her, and the family was fine with it.
2: Was the woman mentally challenged? The younger girl? The one who had the babies with him. No. Jesus. Not that it makes any difference. I'm just, you know, just wondering.
3: I mean, just the family allowing that to happen, and to let her have two kids? But anyways, and just an FYI, I found out that Ricky never really got married, but he supposedly fathered a total of four children. Yet, don't know who the other mother of the two kids or the same girl had two more kids they don't really specify it's a mystery this whole thing's a mystery now he ends up going to court and his public defender tries to use the fact that ricky was suffering from some mental disease or defect that did not fly in court they said that he was deemed fit to stay in trial so ricky ended up pleading guilty and spent close to 13 months at the farmington correctional center after serving his time and being released Ricky supposedly picked up a job at an Amico gas station working the graveyard shift in downtown St. Louis. And I say supposedly because I had to go through multiple websites and multiple sources, they don't know if he got a job or he was just unemployed and homeless, but yet most of them said that he worked at the Amico gas station. So at this gas station, his boss, who was the owner of this Amoco, Baha Hamdala, supposedly had Ricky partake in some illegal activity as a side hustle. Ricky would often make trips to Orlando, Florida on behalf of Baja and his brother Juma. This would go on till 1999. Six years after he got released from prison, he ended up getting a job at Amico, and this is where he worked and where he did a side hustle of drug trafficking. Now, his girlfriend at the time told the police that she believed he was smuggling marijuana for the Hamdala brothers. In his final trip to Orlando, which was in mid-June of 1999, His girlfriend and aunt stated that he seemed scared and started to act erratically since he got back from the trip. Then between June 22nd and June 25th, Ricky visited two different emergency rooms complaining of chest pains and shortness of breath. The first hospital that he went to, Barnes Jewish Hospital, decided to admit Ricky and he would be discharged on June 24th, so he stayed two days. Then on the 25th, Ricky complained of shortness of breath at the Forest Park Hospital, which they told him just to go home. They're just like, no, nothing's wrong with you. Just go. Then on June 26th, this would be the last phone call that he would make to his girlfriend, Sandra Jones. Is Sandra Jones
2: the underage woman that he raped? They do not specify. Okay.
3: All right. I guess because since she was under 14.
2: Yeah, they won't release her name. Yeah.
3: Okay. Just wondering. Then the morning of June 27th, another gas station employee said that he saw Ricky come by the Amaco gas station, you know, briefly before heading off somewhere else. This would be the last time anyone would see Ricky McCormick alive. Now, this is where I start to think things get like really strange. No one had heard or seen Ricky since that morning of June 27th. Then no one even thought about reporting Ricky missing. Not his family, not his girlfriend. He talked to her on the 26th. No one found his body till the 30th. So she hasn't talked to him in four days. Then no one saw him in three days. No one reported him missing or anything, which was weird. I mean, he
2: transported drugs. I'm sure he was gone for long periods of time.
3: But they knew where he went, though. Oh, true. Like his girlfriend knew, and we'll get to that in a little bit as well. So they didn't find his body until June 30th, and that his body was discovered 20 miles from where he lived, laying in a field already decomposing. So that was three days since the body was already badly decomposed Parts of his fingers were no longer attached to his hand. That's how bad it was. But luckily, his fingertips were still intact to where they could do a fingerprint to identify the body. That's when they were able to tell that it was Ricky McCormick. They took the body in. The medical examiner could not determine the cause of death because of how bad it was. Now, Captain David Tyfenburn of St. Charles County Police stated, and I quote, It's kind of a puzzle case. If I was to rely on my police instincts, there probably is some foul play, we just haven't been able to prove it yet. They had no proof, there's no evidence of any foul play, they just just found a body out there. So the police had no idea how he'd gotten there or why he would be out that way. Because Ricky, for one, he did not own a car, and two, there was no public transportation that would go back and forth to that area, 20 miles from where he lived. Knowing, though, how badly his body was decomposed, and learning of the last location that he was actually seen, they were confused on how his body could have decomposed that fast. They said that he couldn't have died more than three days prior since he was seen on the morning of the 27th. Then the weather had been moderate and didn't have any effect on speeding up the decomposition. This is why the police believe that there was foul play. Ricky may have been killed somewhere else and before dumping his body in the field, he was kept either in a car trunk or in a hot building somewhere to where his body decomposed faster because of the heat. So like I said earlier though, the medical examiner could not determine his cause of death, leading to a homicide being ruled out. Police had nothing to go on, not witnesses, nobody knew of any motive to why anyone would want to kill him, and they didn't see any weapons. They didn't see any like actual wounds on him either. So this case had come to a standstill in 1999. This is where the kicker comes in. 12 years after his death. So in 2011, That is when the FBI revealed that in the pants pocket of Ricky, they found two encrypted notes. So that whole time in 1999, when they were doing the investigation, they never mentioned that they found the notes in his pocket. They kept that secret, not just from, you know, public, but even his family. They had no idea of this. So that whole time, those 12 years, the FBI's cryptanalysis and racketeering records unit had been trying to decipher the notes but they had no luck in solving it. The CRRU, the racketeering unit, was able to crack Nazi codes during World War II and successfully solve more than 99% of cases like this one. This code, if it was code, is considered to be ranked third on the FBI's toughest list to crack. They were completely stumped on this, so the FBI decided, what the hell, let's see if the public can figure out the code and decipher it for us the FBI released the notes on their site asking for help, which more than 7,000 people left comments as soon as it was posted. The amount of people trying to solve it and visiting the webpage actually caused the FBI page to crash. It couldn't handle the, all the traffic.
2: They need to upgrade their servers. It's the friggin' government. Come on, man, upgrade your servers.
3: Now, with all those people trying to decipher the code, no one, not a single person has been able to decipher it yet. Even to this day, It is still unsolved along with the death of Ricky McCormick, which they believe these encrypted notes may have the answer to who murdered him, which I will provide the images of the notes. And man, now I don't know if y'all have ever seen these notes, but honestly, it just looks like random letters. And I think that's why none of the FBI racketeering group can really solve it.
2: Let's take a gander at these. Take a look at them. Oh, God. What the hell is this? I was expecting a bunch of chicken scratch. These are legitimate letters, but just randomly put together like it's T-F-R-N-E-N and then the number nine and then what is that L or one N-S-E-N-P-8-5-E-R. It looks like one of those things that you look at at the eye doctor's office and you got to read off, but they just added a lot more letters and numbers.
3: That's exactly what it looks like. And I mean, granted, there's some parentheses involved and I think there might be a question mark somewhere, but they're just like either Ricky wrote this himself or the person that actually murdered Ricky had wrote this and somehow, I guess, put it in his pocket to try to throw off the police. I don't know, When you look at this, it kind of looks
2: like misspelled words just jumbled all together, like misspelled words all, with no spaces all put together.
1: I've seen texts like this before, and it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Back when I worked a long time ago, when I worked at a correctional facility, and there were paranoid schizophrenics and mentally disabled people that would come into the mental ward. It's eerily similar. There were documents like this. They would draw, they would write stuff out like this and plaster it on the wall. Some of them were actually coherent equations that made sense. Some of these guys were geniuses. This reminds me a lot of that type of context that I would get while I worked there.
3: Damn. It just looks like a bunch of random letters. But for some reason, the FBI studied this for 12 years. They don't think it's just random letters. They believe that it is an encrypted note. That something about this has answers. Which, I mean, they could be right or they could be wrong on this one. But, I mean, it's they still have it up on their website. Like, it's all over Reddit. People still trying to decipher it. There's been a couple people that said they have deciphered it and they wrote out like what it says, and honestly, it makes no sense. And like they actually used the uh, like AI programs to decipher it, and it comes out. One of them came out with like an ad or something.
2: We've been trying to contact you about your uh, car insurance, <laughs> right? What
3: was it? Your uh, what is it?
1: Car's extended warranty.
2: <laughs> yeah, car's extended warranty.
3: Yeah, so it's like no one's been able to figure this out yet, but there are a couple theories about who may have murdered Ricky, though. The first one would be the Amico owner, Baha Hamdala, the one that was supposedly having Ricky take frequent trips to Orlando, Florida to bring back marijuana for him. Then the second suspect was a high-level drug dealer who ran the area of Ricky's neighborhood, who has also been suspected in several other homicides, Gregory Lamar Knox. Supposedly a confidential informant for the police told them that Knox was responsible for the murder of a black man who worked at the gas station on Chateau Avenue and whose body got dumped outside of West Alton, which was the same area that Ricky's body was found. Unfortunately, they investigated both suspects and found nothing connecting the two to the death of Ricky McCormick. Now, I do have my own personal theory about this. All right, let's hear it. So, as I was going through this reading stuff, and this is only if, and I mean if he was actually moving marijuana for someone. He may have been skimming some for himself, but then again, I don't think it was actually him skimming it, which means taking some for himself, which when you're doing that, you're not supposed to do something like that. I'm going to point at the girlfriend and this is why, like I said earlier, your boyfriend goes missing. You haven't talked to him in four days. You usually know when he goes to Orlando, Florida, cause they supposedly live together. So he didn't come home for four days. He didn't tell you like he was leaving. You usually know where he's going. You didn't report him didn't say anything to anybody then I think she was the one skimming stealing some of the marijuana and when she found out that he got busted for it she let him take the fall for it so I found part of a police report that was written they kind of summed up what Sandra said and it says McCormick would accept offers to pick up and deliver packages for money he made trips to Florida before and on several occasions brought marijuana into the apartment he shared with Jones in the Clinton Peabody Housing Project south of downtown. The drugs would usually be sealed in Ziploc bags, rolled together into bundles the size of baseballs. McCormick told Jones he was holding the stashes of weed for Baha Hamdala, and that's what the report says. So she knows he would bring it home to the apartment and stash it there until he was able to deliver it to his boss. This makes me believe that she's definitely part of it, knowing that what he was bringing into the apartment Knowing well about his mental issues, think about it. If he really couldn't read and write, couldn't really spell or anything like that, what makes you think that he probably knows how to count? But who
2: killed him? I mean, if the wife, girlfriend, whatever, was skimming marijuana off the top and they cleared Hamdala of anything involved, who killed him?
3: The person that he was probably going to pick it up from. Only reason I say that is when Baha Hamdallah gets his shipment of marijuana, It's short messages even going back like, hey, I'm paying this much. You're not giving me what I'm paying for. They get into argument like, no, we're giving you exactly what you're paying for. When Ricky made his last trip to Florida, he came back scared and was acting erratically like something bad had happened. They confronted him about it. He got scared. He didn't know what to do because, I mean, for one, he didn't really take it. Someone else was taking it. He took the fall for it. They ended up pretty much killing him. So. It would be the person he was getting the shipment from and probably his boss had something to do with it.
2: Yeah. And this letter is just incoherent scribbles. The alphabet soup. Yeah, pretty
3: much. And that's what a lot of people have said is that these notes, they're not encrypted notes at all. There's nothing encrypted about it. Is that if he did have a mental condition, he may have come up with his own kind of language that he could understand. And this is what it is. And the fact that You know, he created his own language. No one's going to decipher this whatsoever. Only person that would, would be Ricky himself. And he's dead. Hate to say it. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty much his case would probably never be solved. These notes, never going to be solved. Because honestly, I don't even think they're really encrypted. I saw one video, guy was just like, oh, there's one word in here that's actually, you know, a word. And it's tenant, T-E-N-E-T but they're not together. And he's just like, oh, it points to tenant healthcare. That's located all over the United States. God, I hate that when they do those reaches. As soon as I heard that, I was just like, no, you don't think the FBI would have seen that and then connected that like that right there is way too simple. Yeah. And that right there, Ricky McCormick is my theories Thursday. I honestly, I like puzzles. Most of the day I've been looking at this note and I've been like trying to wrap my brain around it. And I'm just like sitting here just like, this ain't going to be solved. Not saying that I could ever solve it, but it's just, it doesn't make any sense. There's no key to go with nothing. But if anybody wants to try it, I do have the site to where you can go look and you can try your hand at it.
2: Yeah, if you or a loved one can crack the code, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you.
3: Yeah, I'd love to know what this note actually says. Hope it's not actually an ad like someone said it was. So yeah.
2: I like that. Thank you, Dan, for your Theories Thursday. I enjoyed it. A murder mystery. I love murder mysteries. That pretty much wraps up our episode today. Do either one of you have anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to state?
1: Anything at all before we roll this episode out? I just want to say I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. Get out and do something fun. Get out of your fucking house, okay? You've been sitting in that goddamn recliner all fucking week. Get up and do something. Look at your dog. He's staring at you, right? He's sad as shit. He wants to go on a walk. You take him for a f***ing walk, and you have a good week. I love you. I don't know if you're talking to me or...
0: <laughs> I'm talking to everybody.
1: Because <laughs> I'm just thinking, I like, I've done that. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> I need to get the f*** up.
3: No, 100%. I hope everyone has a good weekend. If you're in the Texas area and you witnessed that storm that came through <laughs> on Wednesday, that was kind of scary. All the hell. Dude, and the hail the other night? What the hell was that? That was hell. That was in the drive through at Taco Bell. The wind earlier? was insane i walked out there stood on the front porch and i'm waving, like going back and forth because how strong the wind was. I was just like damn
2: i gotta tell y'all what happened to me at heb before we roll this out
3: okay what took okay. you so long
2: yes well no what took me so long is i took a shower got dressed took my time you know brushed my hair anyways i went to heb going getting some stuff to make ramen for us because i was craving ramen that shit was good, by the way.
3: Dude, that Thank shit 100% you. was delicious. Thank you.
2: So I was walking through the aisle, and I come to the very end of one. And you know how it's that awkward moment when there's another person passing by, and they, they're kind of hesitant to go or not go. You're in the same situation, and you're kind of dancing with your carts back and forth. Yes. I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about. Except there was a lady in uh, one of those power chairs, right? So I'm in my cart. I'm pushing it, and I stop. I'm like, you can go ahead. She goes, no, 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 honey. It's Pride Month. You go ahead and go first. I said, okay. I had a weird look. I was like, what? I said, But I didn't say that. I was like, okay. And I just went. For the rest of the day, I wondered. I got my hair up in a bun. Does it make me look feminine? Does my manly beard make me look feminine? I don't know. I mean, I'd f*** you. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) 100% after that ramen? (laughs) You damn right. (laughs) All right, well... I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. We love each and every one of you. Remember, if you're going through some troubles, if you're depressed, if you are suicidal, uh, make sure you reach out to somebody, call the suicide hotline or just get in touch with someone you love. There's no shame in reaching out to somebody. And it's not the cowardly thing to do. It's not. It's not at all. And remember that the person you see in the mirror. Every day, that person has gone through a lot, you know, gone through tough times and is still standing there. And that same person is the one who deserves all the best of you. And you got to give them that. With that being said, I want to thank you for joining us today and thank you for your love and support. Dan and Caleb, you want to roll us out?
3: Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts
1: because you are not alone.